As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of Off Air with Jane and Fee is brought to you by British Heart Foundation. British Heart Foundation have estimated that up to 7.6 million people are living with heart and circulatory diseases in the UK. And there is something we can all do to help fund life-saving research. And don't worry, Fee, we don't all need to run marathons to fundraise today. Over 50% of their research is funded by gifts in wills. Now, these are really vital in supporting life-saving research. It's such a remarkably positive thing we can all do and definitely something to consider if you are writing your will or thinking of updating it. With a simple act, you can support future scientific breakthroughs that could help save and improve millions of lives. British Heart Foundation offers a free will guide and free will writing services too, helping to make the process as easy as possible. To download your free will guide today and help British Heart Foundation fund life-saving research, search BHF Wills. Welcome to the best of Jane and Fee. I'm Fee Glover. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so long. I'm Jane Garvey. She I says confidently. Love the fact that you had to look down at a piece of paper for that. It's not a difficult period. It's been a very long year. It's Christmas between New Year, very whatever it's called. Year. It's a very harrowing time. For this week, we've been looking at some of our favourite interviews from our first couple of months on our new home. We are loving it. Uh, first, though, we talked to Grace Dent about her culinary arts. Uh, hello, Grace. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. If you were a guest on your own podcast, what would you choose as your comfort eating treat? Well, it used to be oven chips with powdered gravy made in a mug with some mint sauce on it, which gives you all of the joy of the roast dinner on a <laughs> Sunday with none of the uh, arduous tasks of making any of it. I've changed it recently. I'm eating a lot of cauliflower. You know that riced cauliflower? God, that's a leap there. <laughs> I'm, making, I'm making riced cauliflower into rice pudding with Weetabix. You what? I wish you hadn't asked that question, Fee. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I know. Look, look, yes. I, I advise you to follow me as a food expert. It kind of gives you all of the snuggliness of a rice pudding, um, but with cauliflower. So you're keeping those carbs down. Take it from me. 
Okay. I don't know I, about I'm you. some pushback. Yeah. The- I've got a little sicky burp, actually, at the moment. Just the thought of uh, Weetabix and cauliflower. Well, let me prevent that from developing. Uh, I just, what I will say, Grace, is that oven chips, we haven't got a lot to celebrate in life, but oven chips have mm. significantly improved in my, in, in my lifetime. They, they start, yeah. Do you remember the, the originals were dire? But now you can get some really properly decent oven chips, can't you? Yeah, they've, they've started to make them very oily and uh yeah oily and well look salty and delicious all the bad stuff all the bad good stuff and then they just freeze it and then and then you can have them in the freezer and then you get um then you get your air fryer don't start me about the air fryer because having given up almost all of the vices in my life i now walk around parties telling people how quickly you can air fry things Oh dear. My kind of girl. No, I like that. I, I like the air fryer myself. Uh, comfort <laughs> eating is an interesting thing, though, isn't it, Grace? On your podcast, do you find that most people, uh, you know, when they start thinking about a comfort food, will automatically reach for something in their childhood, almost yeah. irrespective of if that childhood might not have been great? We remember the food, don't we, as being possibly better than it was. <laughs> I think it's really telling how many people choose the thing that reminds them of school, school dinners, because I think that a 60s, 70s, 80s school, especially the comprehensive school day was horrible and it was it was relentlessly mean. And then at 12 o'clock, a bell rang and you got some sponge pudding with some pink custard. Yes. <laughs> and I think that... That stays with people. What's for the happened whole to that combination of chocolate sponge and pink custard? Yes, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I mean, Jay Blades uh, was on the podcast recently, and he was talking about that he had a horrible time at school. But when at lunchtime he um, he used to, you know, have this amazing sponge pudding. He would. He was. His eyes just came alive talking about everything they had in in the school. You know, those those amazing ladies in tabards serving up love. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, look, people come in to do comfort eating and they think they're going to talk about toasties and they end up talking about their relationship with their dad and their divorce. And uh, yeah, we go deep. We go deep. You know what it's like. You do the same, ladies. Well, we do. not so much these days, Grace. We're here. We're here for a little. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Um, she lied. Um, tell me about um, the first exotic food that you ate. Oh gosh, the first exotic food. I think the first time I ever saw absolutely posh food, it was one. It was my grandmother's fiftieth wedding anniversary. And we went to a proper slightly fancy restaurant and they had as a starter, as an option, a Florida cocktail. Ooh. Which which means what? Is that chocolate with pineapple? I think it was just segments of orange and pineapple. I mean, this would never happen. No, this was like 1982 in Outback Cumbria. But yeah, I think that was... And I always remember that one of my aunties who was... Who was who was you know you know you've always got one of those posh aunties who's just a little bit posher than everybody else, and she turned up and she ordered it and I just thought it was the epitome of glamour to uh, <laughs> to sit there and just pick her a piece of a piece of uh, grapefruit. Yeah, I had a, 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 
interestingly, my, uh, my first exotic experience, because uh, I knew you were going to you were going to ask me what mine was, Grace, uh, <laughs> was was my posh auntie who wore a boiler suit, joined the SDP, and gave me my first olive. And oh, I'll, no, I'll, but I'll never forget it. That's a triple whammy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I honestly think that the first time you put an olive into your mouth is it's an absolute, it's a cornucopia of emotion, isn't it? Was, it? it was a it's lot. Like, it looks like a big grape, yes. and it uh, it tastes satanic just for a while and then reveals itself as something delicious. Do you think that the human palate changes through time? I mean, does does the modern kind of seven-year-old offered an olive have the same experience that Mm. you would have had if you were offered an olive? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you definitely get modern seven-year-olds now. I mean, I go to fancy restaurants where they're still sitting up at the table at uh, 9.45 at night eating foie gras. So it's yeah, uh, unnecessary, isn't it? That's, yeah. You go to somewhere like, where shall I say, Nobu, for example, Nobu Shoreditch, and you go downstairs and you get the guests there who they've obviously came into Britain for the evening and they've got... 11 or 12 children all just sitting on one big table by themselves and each one of them's got a huge iPad and they're getting through thousands of pounds worth of sashimi. I wonder if Nobu will be annoyed at me for saying that. Do you know I don't care? Well um, done, Grace. No, why should you? But we, uh, you started, let, let's talk about restaurants because I, I read your review, I think it was in The Guardian, was it your most recent review in The Guardian, in which yeah. you, you go out for a meal in Brighton, which is, it's oh, a, well, it's an Italian meal that I have to say is less than satisfactory, Grace, but you're there to review the food and that's what you did. But you also yeah. say that you can't really believe that people are out there eating in such numbers, that we know mm-hmm. that we're in recession, we know some people are having a tough time, but the people are still out there, aren't they? They absolutely are. I mean, there's there's a massive discrepancy between the doom and the gloom that we hear. And we're all involved with, they're all telling each other these stories every day about how we're cutting back, what we're cancelling, how Christmas is going to be tighter and smaller than ever before. But then you go out on Saturday night in, um, across the country and it's, it's really, really busy. And the uh, it's the chains that I think are still thriving. You know, they're places, you know, the Pizza Express and Wagamamas and all those places that are dependably good, that, you know, they're really, really busy. And people, oh, look, I think it's going to be a different story in January and mm. February. Mm, yes. It really will be. But uh, right now, right now, because we are British, we're drinking through the pain. Yes. You don't drink anymore, though, do you? I absolutely don't. No, I stopped drinking about um, 18 months ago. I stopped drinking. I just, I, I just, you know, I felt like I'd had enough drinks in my life. I've been drinking since I was fourteen. I'm from Carlisle. <laughs> well, yeah, we should say. I mean, you and you drank snake bite, uh, Grace. Notably, oh, look, I used to love a snaky bee, as we used to call it. Yeah, snake bite. I was talking to Adam Kay on my podcast about this the other day. The ultimate goth drink. Yeah, look, I'm a, I. I'm I'm from a background where you know I was I was drinking from an early age. I got to I'm in my late forties now, and I decided to make some lifestyle changes because I'd had a think, and I didn't want to die of gout. <laughs> oh, God, that's a great line. <laughs> make that put that on a t-shirt. Stop drinking. Don't die of gout. Just, that just wasn't what I was expecting cliche. at all. <laughs> just a cliche. Such a cliche, you know. What did she die of? 
she died very slowly of gout. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's not a good look and you don't want to have to spend one foot up on a poof of an evening oh, in order no. to get rid of well, actually, see, crystals I've, of lactic acid. I know acid. someone who's got gout. You're on medication for the rest of your life, aren't you, yes, with gout, serious. Grace? Uh, Johnny says, uh, I'm not a fan of funerals in general, but I do love mm. a funeral buffet. I uh, like a quiche Lorraine, a potato salad and those chicken satay sticks. You could yeah. even chuck a vegetable spring roll on that, he says, and I'd be completely happy. That's a nice think, yeah, I'm um, never sure, though, because the volivoy is just not the snack you want to have in your mouth when you're trying to convey the deepest of emotions about the passing of somebody. It's a feathery little thing, isn't it? So I, mean, I would have pastry have might, to... You might be spraying pastry at yes, yeah, in, in, okay. in difficult I, I, times. I think it, it depends on the nature of the death, really. I think if it's somebody who's had a really, really long life um, and it's a, a very old person, that's okay. But I would still reach for a sausage on a stick in that occasion. Always, actually. Uh, do you have some ready-to-rumble quotes up your sleeve when you're writing your restaurant reviews? You said this about a restaurant in London, BB. It's an Indian restaurant, isn't it? I've never been there myself. I'd happily bathe in the peanut sauce, splashing it about my armpits and behind that's- my ears before dressing without showering. <laughs> uh, um, I write my restaurant columns right at the last minute at about five o'clock in the morning. Um, I wake up at five. I pour myself a pint of gold blend. I open up a word, a, br- a blank word column and stare at the abyss, rocking for a while, wishing I'd began two days early. And 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 it's just the madness that comes out. Like I I don't I don't have anything up my sleeve. And I always say that to be a restaurant critic, it isn't about being knowing so much about food, but more being able to just sit down and describe a white room that serves pasta at least 12 times a year while still retaining your job and them not well, giving it to somebody else that, because it, that's the job. And you know? it's hard. I mean, it's you do it brilliantly, but as you <laughs> describe, you. it's not easy. Um, here's a confession from a listener who says, I used to visit Holland regularly for work. We were always accommodated in a particular hotel with a good breakfast buffet. Um, Why do people do this? One of my colleagues took great delight in depositing raw eggs in the baskets full of boiled ones. He just liked to watch when somebody broke one thinking it was cooked. What a weird way to get your kicks. That's very strange, isn't it? That's very childish. I'm not sure about that. I can't condone that. I can't. I can't. He's he's breaking the trust of the buffet, isn't (laughs) it? Uh, what is your strangest buffet combination out of all of those international buffets that you've sampled? Some, some, some two things that you've put on your plate that you never thought it was humanly possible to see on the mm. same piece of crockery. I think it was at the Caesars, Caesars Palace and uh, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, the Bacchanal, where it costs about $130 to get in there and they have about 200 types of um pudding they have um, dessert sorry desserts they they have all these tiny little desserts they're absolutely amazing but they also have uh they call it the steamship which is this enormous wagyu beef so i think somebody in the end served me wagyu beef and sticky toffee pudding are you um still battling to give up twitter or have you decided to having written a rather successful book about giving up twitter have you decided to abandon giving it up and you're sticking with it i feel like if Elon Musk ran that site into the sea tomorrow, he would be doing me a favour. I'm not saying that he would be doing the world a favour. I'm sure a lot of people get a lot of joy out of it. And it does have its uses. 
but I don't think I'll ever get Twitter fully out of my life. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same. It's like I open up the door to the to the room and I scan through it and I look at it all and uh, and I immediately start to feel anxious and elated and titillated in equal doses. And then I think I'm not going to look at that anymore. And I might go through a couple more weeks, but then I'm back again. And that has been going on since 2008. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And would you not be attracted by something that did everything that Twitter did, but just could guarantee that the, you know, the bad faith stuff wasn't on there? No, it's never going to be like that, though, is it? I mean, it's not, I don't I've said that if I if I switch on Twitter at some point in the next couple of weeks and Twitter's gone, I am not bringing any more social media into my life I'm this this is going to be a whole new me you heard it here first I'm not going to be sitting up at three o'clock in the morning being cross at a person in Milwaukee for not having the same opinion as me yeah I know what you mean as a person with a very deep voice I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the best of Jane and Fee, where we're mulling over some of our favourite conversations from the last couple of months. makes movies and TV shows that defy stereotypes. If you love Bridesmaids, you'll know how brilliantly it takes down the wedding conceit and celebrates the place of female friendship in the whole death to us part thing. He likes a complex female character. He's the director of Spy and the female lead reboot of Ghostbusters. He's also directed huge chunks of Mad Men, Freaks and Geeks, The Office, Arrested Development. He's a proper legend, Jane. Well, I like any man who likes complex female characters. Very much so. He's also 
behind Powder Keg, which is a digital content company championing championing new voices with a commitment to LGBTQ plus creatives and filmmakers of colour. And Paul is here to talk about booze. Because when the pandemic struck, he started mixing cocktails, popped the mini movies up on the socials. And before you could say, can I have that over ice? He became a mixicologist sensation and everybody's favourite drunk funkel. It's just such a beautiful term, a drunk funkel. Paul, you're very welcome to our studio. Thank you for having Isn't that weird that both Jane and I are kind of lisping in anticipation of, of having a, a drink. drink? Well, you should always be gasping for a lovely drink. That's my that's my feeling. That, that, that's me. Yes, are you? <laughs> oh, I always am, yes. Uh, did you get very, very drunk during the pandemic? Well, it definitely happened. Uh, you know, I wanted to do something for people, you know, starting right at the beginning of lockdown. Because remember, it was terrifying because we, yes, yeah. we had no idea how it was being transmitted and I just knew I wanted to help and I wanted to raise money for first responders and medical professionals and all that and so I thought well I can I'll start to make cocktails learn how to make cocktails I knew how to make a martini and, and, a, and a negroni but I have all these cocktail books so I thought well I'll do this on camera and we'll have fun and try to give somebody everybody something to watch at five o'clock you know Los Angeles time where I was at the time uh, every day for a hundred days in a row and we did it and it was I, I think it was nice for people I think they had something to kind of look forward to and how big did it all get I mean, it got it got pretty big. It didn't go like crazy, like Stanley Tucci or anything. My friend Stanley Tucci. He is who, your friend, is he? He is my friend. Okay. Yes, and he's he's gone through the roof and much more monetized <laughs> his cocktail skills. <laughs> but no, it was really nice. I think we raised a lot of money, and and, um, and it just I, so many people would write me and just kind of thank me for just giving them something to take their mind off of how scary it was at that time. Is um is America's attitude to alcohol very different to the traditional British approach? Yeah. I don't associate you with drinking heavily. No, well, we are a puritanical country, and you do yeah. see it. Um, but you, you see it more in depends where you are. Like Los Angeles is very basically kind of alcohol adverse. Like if you go out to lunch, like a business lunch, and dare order a glass of wine or something, suddenly eyebrows go up, and then you hear from the town, "Oh, so and so has a drinking problem." <laughs> no, I'm just having a nice <laughs> glass of wine. Um, yeah, especially for gin, because I I'm a gin fanatic, and gin is not very popular in the U.S., but it's obviously obviously hugely popular here. Um, yeah, it, it, you you feel it changing. I think Uber has changed a lot in the states as far as drinking goes, because you couldn't go out. And, and get home, but now it's much easier to go out and get home. So I, I do think people are opening up more, but it's, mm. it's not it's not the boozy culture that I love the UK for. And it was right. London that uh, where you found booze to be a bit more intriguing, wasn't it, when you were a younger man? Yeah, yeah. Which I, I find strange, because I think you must be talking about, when would it be, in the 1980s? Well, I first started coming here in the 90s. In I, the I 90s. was here well, a couple times earlier than that, but the 90s when my wife and I met in 1990 and we always came here. Because the London that you describe as a kind of glamorous place to drink, certainly more glamorous than, you know, the places that you would have been able to, yeah. to drink back in America. You know, I always think of, of London as, as not great, actually, for glamour. Back in the 90s, it was pubs, it was yeah. loud bars. Where were you going? <laughs> <laughs> I found a few. I mean, you can go to the Savoy and the Claridge's. Okay. That's that where you were going wrong, Fee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not that I could afford it back then. No, for me, it was more the idea that drinking wasn't looked upon as being so taboo here. You know, in America, when you go to a, a bar, it's a, it's a closed bunker with no windows. And um, so you're kind of 
there's a shame about it. And here, the first time walking down the street and seeing all these people standing out on the street, I go, what's going on? Did they evacuate a building? It's like, oh, no, it's a pub, and it's, it's closing time. You know, and People are off work, and people are just out having a drink, and it's there's windows, and there's children in the pub, and you know, and it's this nice kind of social scene. And I thought that was that was really magical for me. Yeah. Uh, you've brought your cocktail equipment into the studio. Uh, would you like to start mixing something? Yes, I'm going to make you what I consider to be the best martini in the world. Lovely. I do it. I uh, think we've got a little bit of music just to help. Oh, isn't it? Oh, this is very, wow, this is oh, very Escabel. But I tell of... you, could you be the, the classic bartender and we'll just chat amicably while you mix yeah. the drink? Hey, uh, well, welcome ladies. I'm glad you can make it to my, my place. Oh, we're delighted to be here. What uh, star sign are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Virgo. <laughs> what star sign are you, Joan? Cancer. Okay. I'm a Pisces. <laughs> well, you don't count. We're not interested. It's me and Paul. <laughs> That's no. right. Exactly. Come on. Oh, you're still nasty. Uh, why did you want to specifically make films to tackle a female stereotype? Was it a kind of Damascene conversion one day, or did you just notice this hinterland that Hollywood was ignoring? Well, I was mostly friends with, uh, with women and girls growing up, and, you know, loved them and their senses of humor. Mind if I stir while we do this? <laughs> Paul, I really don't mind. Thank you. <laughs> it's got to be very cold. Um, uh, and, I, you know, so they were funny and, and smart and everything. And then I would watch movies and you would just see these female characters either being, being very one-dimensional. And in comedy especially, they're either the shrewish girlfriend or the mean wife or the you know, aunt, mean mother. And then I had friends, you know, who were famous kind of female comedians. And you'd see them in a movie and they weren't allowed to be funny they were just being mean or, or terrible and it, it made me very upset and i always wanted to tell women's stories anyway i just feel very much closer to those stories and so just kind of started to do it but it was hard i couldn't do it in the beginning it was, wasn't until really until bridesmaids took off that that allowed me to be able to mm. get them made yeah and well, that, we're the, very grateful the fuss around the female ghostbusters oh just, that was just, that was another one of yours, but that was incredible. It was exhausting. It was really, and it was so silly. And a lot of it, I, I will say, a lot of it came from the UK. Did it? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of amazing. And look, I, I get it. It was, you know, it's a sacred cow that movie. I didn't realize what a sacred cow was because I was in college when it came out. But a lot of you know, young boys grew up with it. And, uh, you know, I guess I kind of stepped into something that they just didn't want me to do. But, you know, what's nice is this whole new generation of, of younger people really love the movie. And, you know, I have a lot of parents come up and say, oh, it's my son and daughter's favorite favorite movie. Mm. So, yeah. When you've been a director for as long as you have and a really successful one, do you find it changes your eye just in how you view the world? Does it become more uncomfortable to be in a world where things aren't going entirely <laughs> your way all the time? <laughs> You'd think I'd be a control freak. But uh, no, I, 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 if anything, I am addicted to the world around me uh, and observing it and trying to find out how to portray things more realistically. And also, what are people interested in? Because that's the hardest thing we have in this business is coming up with ideas that people care about. You know, because we can come up with ideas we like all day long, but you really have to run it through a litmus test of does anyone want to see that? And what I have to do is say, okay, if I was in a movie theater and saw a trailer for this movie, would I? And I didn't know myself, I would say, would I? Oh, would I have to see that or not? And that cuts out a lot of a lot of movies if you really think about it. Paul Feig is our guest this afternoon, just mixing us a martini. I think it's time to pour these martinis. Too. Oh, Paul, go for it. Here they go. Mm. There was so much drinking in Mad Men, wasn't there? Do you ever worry? <laughs> a little bit about that kind of image 
you know, drink pulls people down in real life, if we can be realistic. About I don't it. know. That is true. That's something, you know, being the cocktail guy now with my book and everything, you do kind of go like, I don't want to like lure people into some kind of vice. But at the same time, you know, adult living and, and you know, <laughs> having fun as a grown up is about, you know, grown up vices, if you will. But you have to be able to handle them, you know, responsibly oh. uh, but yeah I mean Mad Men I, I actually only did a few episodes of it so uh, I feel much less he's not responsible it's not, oh, it's not my fault exactly yeah, nothing to do with you but speaking oh, of drinks that. there yes, we go now, what do you think of these glasses because somebody went up to the They're 17th okay. floor and basically nicked them I think uh, what would you describe them as, as uh... these are a little more uh, I would dare say champagne uh, glasses okay. uh, classic uh, Marie Antoinette but uh, now, now normally that glass would be frozen uh, so, oh, I'm so sorry it's not we quite cold enough. Able to do that. That's okay, but uh, I just yeah. I don't want you to judge me fully on this. this I is... thought better of the people who run News UK. I thought they'd have had. Well, I'm sorry. I, just... I know it's, it's so very what's, it's what's, very upsetting. What's in this pool, and what makes it so classic and so special? <laughs> it's a gin. It's my own gin, by the way. Oh. Um, uh, Arding Stahl's brilliant London Dry Gin, which I make. Um, Good grief! It is available now. Do you <laughs> like it? I, 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 yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Good. Whether I can continue working, I don't know. But, <laughs> That's yeah. my goal: is to take you down. <laughs> um, and I make a very dry martini, so I just literally like a drop of vermouth, but then uh, stir it until it's very, very cold. And yeah. then uh, a, a lemon twist, which you just uh, express the uh, the lemon oil on top of the on the surface. Thank oh you my so much. word! Paul. Yeah, and then uh, off you go. Yes. Uh, and in all seriousness, how many of these could you get through on a, a sort of standard uh, evening? I mean, if the evenings sort of, if I'm drawing it out over the evening, I could do three or four. But but that's over the course of the evening. If, if you just down them in one sitting. Yeah, I mean, I should point out that Fee and I are, we're both about five foot one. <laughs> and I just put it to you that we might struggle with more than one of these. Over okay. The, uh, yeah, maybe. I actually, I poured you a small one there. I, I still, I've got enough here I could actually drink right out of the, right <laughs> out of the, please the mixing glass. Even we have some sort of standard. Thank you, thank you. Some decorum, please. Yeah, okay. Um, what, can we talk sort of semi-seriously about the state of it? It's a big question for you, Paul, but you are an American. Yeah. Um, what's happening to America? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very heartened by the midterms, I will say. Okay, so... Yeah, because we really thought it was going to go off the rails with all these election deniers and all That's that. That's my kind of... I, we, a lot of us here, don't get the election denial thing. Uh, we don't get it either, honestly. Here, here, I will explain it to you in, in one word. Uh, um, bad loser, sore loser, two words. It's basically Donald Trump is a is a uh, uh, you know a malignant narcissist and. I was like, oh, how is he going to handle when he loses? And you go, oh, no, I know how he's going to handle when he loses. He's going to say he didn't lose. And that's what it was. And so everybody else just jumped on it. I don't know if anybody else believes it. I mean, it was proven to be one of the most honest uh, elections ever in our country. And yet one guy who can't deal with it just opened this up. And, and they, you know, the, the, the GOP saw it as a, just any way to just stay in power. So they just all kind of jumped on it. But fortunately, you know, the majority of Americans rejected it. And that was really heartening to me. Why isn't there a greater push within uh, the younger demographic in America to be represented by somebody their own age? Yeah. Well, I mean, there is. The The problem is just, you know, still the, the majority of the electric is, electorate is still older voters. And, you know, I mean, honestly, the young vote really saved us in the midterms. They came out for this in a way that polling didn't show because polling doesn't tend to go through cell phones. You know, they go through traditional phones and all that. So that's, you know, older people have that. But, no, they definitely wanted it just it's it's an uphill battle to find the person who's going to really set 
everybody on fire at the same time. But we've got some great people. I, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Gretchen. Uh, um, oh God, like, Bund, um, out, out of uh, Michigan. Oh, I wish uh, I knew now, the name. Now Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer. Oh, I, I nearly said it. Yes, there you go. And I'm from Michigan, so <laughs> I'm going to be drunk. Very, very drunk. <laughs> yeah. drunk. I didn't even have any yet. I'm, I'm going right to this mixing glass. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, and actually, uh, the whole female empowerment thing has been yours, been your domain. You've made it your domain, but. There are still uh, Kamala Harris, again, for reasons mm-hmm. that many of us here don't fully get because we're, we're not entirely up to speed with American politics. Mm-hmm. But why has she been such a flop and why aren't people talking about her as a potential successor? I don't know. I'm a big Kamala fan, I have to say, and I supported her in the in the election. But, I, I mean, I think, you know, Joe Biden has a way he wants to do things and he doesn't want to have, I think, somebody, you know, his vice president sort of, you know, coming in and taking too much of the spotlight, I guess. I, I don't quite understand it. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm a Biden fan, so I know that's taboo to say it. But I think he's doing a really good job. If you look at what he's doing, what he's getting accomplished is pretty good. Do you want to I'm see concerned. him run again? No, I mean, uh, he just turned 80, so I don't want to be ageist on anybody. Well, you can be, because uh, I mean, let's just be honest about it. Yeah. It's it's too old. It's 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 up there. It's up there. So, it's up there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is exactly. up there. Yeah, until I'm 80, then I'll be like, hey, he's young. Leave him alone. <laughs> Uh, As a filmmaker and as a creative, how do you get the message across to an increasingly polarised audience? So we talked, I mentioned Powder Keg, uh, your your digital content uh, initiative. Mm -hmm. You know, how are you ever going to get those first-person experiences witnessed by people who need to maybe see a little bit more from a different kind of a place? Well, it depends who's telling the story. I'm very enamoured with uh, Jordan Peele. I think he's very, very smart in the fact that he, you know, is able to tell these, these black stories through the horror genre and people go to see it because you go because you just see that it doesn't matter who you are you know what color you are you go like that looks like a cool movie I want to go see that and that's what it is it's just it's a meritocracy now it's up to us as filmmakers we can't just put stuff on go everybody's going to go see it we have to find undeni- undeniable ideas and do them in a way that make people want to go so it's, it's harder for us to figure that out but that's what we should be doing mm. I think one of the absolutely blissful things about Bridesmaids is it was a movie that you could go and see with your male friends or your husband yeah. or your partner and they would watch it and find the funny bits too, you know, in a way that I think, you know, perhaps the title didn't suggest they were going to enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, they they were rejecting it, but a lot of guys got dragged to it, (laughs) you know, and basically I think it was like, you know, okay, I'll go with her to this, and then she has to go see whatever superhero movie or, you know, war movie I want to see. the hangover. Yeah, exactly. But then they saw it and they really liked it, and they realized it was okay. And that's why I think a lot of my movies have done pretty well, like The Heat and Spy, you know, it's a a buddy cop movie, it's a spy movie movie. I I try not to... I want to make movies that everybody can enjoy, and I want to make movies that that women are in that they don't go, oh, that's a chick flick or whatever, which I I despise the term chick flick. I I think it's just a way for guys to write off a movie starring women. Now, you've been listening to Off Air. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. You can listen to us on the free Times Radio app or download every episode from wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you like what you've heard, then you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5, on Times Radio. Times Radio.